This is Pulling the Strings, a podcast series about coercive control brought to you by the Violence, Abuse and Mental Health Network and hosted by me, Dr. Kitty Saunders, me, Angelique Court, and me, Dr. Charlie Pepitas. In this series, we, your three hosts, will be talking to academic experts, authors, practitioners, and coercive control survivors. We'll be holding critical conversations to improve understanding, break down taboos, and expose the true extent of coercive control. episode we're going to be taking a closer look at the link between economic and financial abuse and coercive control. We'll explore how wealth, finances, work and resources can be used as a means of perpetrating coercive control as well as discussing resources for survivors of abuse to seek help and access support. To help us explore this issue we're joined today by Nicola Sharp-Jeffs. Nicola thank you so much for joining us. So my name is Nicola Sharp-Jeffs. I'm the founder and chief executive of Charity Surviving Economic Abuse, which I founded back in 2017. But my interest in the issue goes back much further to around 2006 when I was working for a domestic abuse service provider and also undertaking a master's at the Child and Women Abuse Studies Unit at London Met University. There's something that really struck me through conversations with victims and survivors through my role, which was policy and parliamentary work at the time, was that the theme of economic abuse threaded through every conversation that we had in one way or another. And I could see the impact of economic abuse on victims and survivors who had fled, often with nothing, and also the challenges that they had moving forward in terms of rebuilding their lives. So having been very interested in the area for a long time, doing my master's dissertation around economic abuse, which was the first piece of research in the UK on this issue, understanding experiences of economic abuse for survivors and their children. That interest continued for a number of years. I set up a website um, that captured and shared resources around this issue. And a lot of the resources came from Australia and the US. So I visited the US and Australia and saw fantastic resources available to victims and survivors there. And that really compelled me to come back to the UK and to set up a charity that enabled those same opportunities to be available to victims and survivors across the four nations. Wow, thank you so much for joining us, Nicola. You know, it's been identified that economic dependence is a really critical obstacle for women who are attempting to leave abusive partners. So I think that's come up a lot in the literature. But we also know that economic abuse is highly prevalent. So some data that's come out from a UN multi-country study on men and violence in Asia and the Pacific found that over one in five men have perpetrated economic abuse at least once in their lifetime. So the stats are quite high on it, but probably we don't have enough stats around this yet. Yes, I'd agree with that. Certainly we did a piece of research with Aviva earlier this year, which suggested, I guess on the flip side, that two in five survivors had experienced at least one form of financial abuse. Our own research um, has shown that 95% of domestic abuse survivors experience economic abuse. So it's always really going to be there. You know, I don't think we can underestimate the importance of economic safety, even though a lot of people, you know, still within society would perhaps recognise economic abuse as perhaps not as serious, in inverted commas, as, as physical or sexual violence might be. 
if we take it back a step, there are lots of ways that we can define economic abuse. But I suppose one good way for people who aren't familiar with it, who are listening, that we can conceptualize it is through uh, instances where one person tries to control another person's ability to acquire, use or maintain those economic resources. And so in essence, it's a way of threatening their security and their ability to be self-sufficient. So we can see that economic abuse is closely linked to coercive control as it's just one way of ensuring that the victim is completely dependent on the perpetrator and entrapped within their relationship. And when we think about what economic abuse looks like in the real world, it can involve preventing a partner from obtaining or maintaining employment, possibly by forcing them to quit work or preventing them from attending job interviews. It can involve restricting their access to money, so taking their paychecks or their income support, being the sole controller of their financial accounts, meaning the victim has to ask the perpetrator for permission to use their money or an allowance. It also encompasses control of the distribution of information around money to the victim, which can take place in the form of lying about the location of assets or generating debt in the victim's name. Nicola, are there any other behaviours or important aspects of economic abuse that you've come across through your work with survivors that are important to be thinking about? I think it's a really good question. And I think maybe historically we've thought about economic abuse only in relation to dependence. Um, but certainly what we see increasingly are other behaviours that create instability. So not dependence in the way that survivors don't have access to all of those things. They do, but they're not in control of how those resources are managed. So certainly within the definition that you just described, that is the basis of the definition that sits within legislation. And it talks about particular behaviours that have that adverse impact on a victim or a survivor. So we see those behaviours in three different ways. So starting with restriction, which is very much restricting access to financial information, restricting, restricting access to money, bank accounts and so on and so forth, knowledge about assets. But what we see increasingly are behaviours linked to exploitation and also sabotage. So if we were to take the working example, you know, a victim survivor might be allowed uh, to work and to earn that independent income and that money might go into their own bank account and they might have absolute, certainly on the face of it, control of how, the, of how that money is spent. But if the perpetrator, for example, is refusing to contribute to household costs to pay towards mortgage or rent, food, electricity, other bills, perhaps childcare, the victim survivor is having to manage that all on their own. And we often see in those situations, the perpetrator is also working, as I say, not contributing, spending the money how they would like, spending their money how they would like, but also insisting on a particular lifestyle that the victim or survivor is also expected to fund. And that's when we see a lot of victims and survivors who might not be coerced into debt by a perpetrator, although again, that's really common. And we see that again in 60% of cases, but having to use credit in order to meet the perpetrator's demands and, and getting into debt that way. And I would argue that actually a definition of, of coerced debt would kind of recognise situations in which victims and survivors are doing that themselves, but again, not through their own free will. That leaves a lot of survivors that I've spoken to working multiple jobs, still not bringing enough money in, having to get into debt, and then the impact that that then has on their available income. They're often working just to, to pay the bills to make debt repayments, and that means that they have no available funds. So whilst they're not dependent on the perpetrator, they still don't have that income and that ability to make the free choices that they want to be able to make. And certainly, we know, again, perpetrators will often, moving on to the sabotage piece, they might sabotage the victim survivor's ability to make those repayments. They might also be constantly destroying property that needs to be replaced. So all of this absorbing disposable income and having a negative impact on credit ratings, which again limits the victim survivor's choices when they 
do leave if that's their decision because they might be in mortgage arrears or they might not be able to get a mobile phone contract in their own name. So again, that process of the building becomes really challenging. So lots of different behaviours that impact victims and survivors in lots of different ways, but ultimately the abuser achieves the outcome that they want, which is to stop the victim survivor leaving and also certainly to make their life very difficult if they do leave. Of course, we know economic abuse, again, is one of those forms of coercive trial and behaviour that can be perpetrated post-separation. So again, more sabotage in victims and survivors being threatened with the family courts. Perhaps they might look like they've got assets on paper when a legal aid application is made. But, you know, then having to find money for legal fees, the perpetrator not paying child maintenance, the perpetrator refusing to deal with joint assets, so the sale of the house, if that's something that the survivor wants, or refusing to either be removed or to let the survivor be removed from a joint bank account and other joint financial arrangements, which really a lot of victims and survivors talk about how that creates like an invisible chain to the abuser, which really they want to remove again in order to, to be able to move on and to stand on their own two feet economically and not have somebody else's behaviour have a negative impact on their life chances moving forward. That was all such helpful. They were such helpful additions to our original definition. And I think something that struck me is the idea of this invisible chain that people can't see outside of the, the dynamic and things going on under under the surface that aren't visible to others and how that makes these things much easier to perpetrate in many ways because it can't be called out. It can't be kind of directly observed in many cases but also how difficult it could be for someone to understand that what was happening to them was a coercive and controlling behaviour and that that really shouldn't be happening at all and probably feeds into the normalisation of of someone knowing your PIN or someone having access to your bank account or telling you what you can and cannot spend your money on and refusing to pay for things in the household, how you might begin to expect that those things are quite normal and how damaging that would be. Yeah, I also, when you were speaking about the kind of normalization of economic abuse, I wondered to what extent also the sort of societal and entrenched gender norms also contribute to the perpetration of economic abuse and our ideas around money. So, for example, the notion that men are the breadwinners and therefore control the finances, does that therefore normalize them having control over all the assets and keeping things from their partner and women be it being expected to take the brunt of the unpaid domestic labour. Yeah, I think you're spot on, Anjali. I think they create, again, that kind of context that I was talking about. And to kind of coin Evan Stark's description, you know, this is hidden but in plain sight in as much as because of the gender norms and stereotypes that we have within society, we don't question these things. So if somebody meets somebody and gives up their job, because their partner, a male partner, for example, in, you know, in, in a heterosexual relationship says, oh, you know, you don't need to work anymore. I'll look after you. That's something that's quite accepted by society and, and people might not question it. If anything, they might say, oh, you're so lucky without kind of recognizing why someone might have been forced or coerced into, into actually making that decision as part of the abuse. So I think education is absolutely key here. 40 years ago, we weren't talking about joint finances. There's no necessarily sort of established ways of how you manage joint 
finances that people kind of understand and recognize as being right and wrong. So someone's telling you a particular narrative. If you're not learning something different, either in a school setting or you're not having conversations in society, because of course we don't talk about abuse and we certainly don't talk about money. How do you know if that is abusive or not abusive behavior? Because you've got no kind of reference point. It's very easy for a perpetrator to say things like, well, women aren't very good at managing money. I'm much better. You can't be a really good mum if you work as well. You know, all of these messages that can be used by the perpetrator to create that context where the victim survivor might feel that they're making a free choice, but actually societal expectations and norms generally, but in relation to gender specifically, are kind of shaping that behaviour. I just wanted to circle back to something that you said that was playing in my mind, Nicola. You said uh, you can't be a really good mom if you also work and I was thinking possibly one way that abusers can control women economically is when they are pregnant and mothers and forcing them into making decisions about what they're going to do in terms of their careers when childcare comes into the relationship and I think I've never really thought about that in terms of economic abuse until we started having this conversation but I wondered if you had any more thoughts on that or anything to contribute around it? Yeah, again, it's a really good question, Charlie. So certainly we know that domestic abuse starts or escalates during pregnancy. It is a risky time. And one of the explanations for that is the dependency that the pregnant partner will experience because, yes, they are likely to go on maternity leave depending on how well uh, supported they are by their employer. They you know, might only be able to claim statutory maternity pay at the very least which really kind of changes, again, that power dynamic and, and can also explain why abuse might start during pregnancy and not before, because, again, the perpetrator has taken advantage of that vulnerable situation that they now find themselves in. So one of the things that we do at Surviving Economic Abuse, actually, is think about how we can support people who are in contact with victims and survivors. And so a lot of our work we do do is with employers. And what we want to do is make conversations around economic well-being as commonplace as conversations are starting to be around mental health, for example, taking opportunities like someone going on maternity leave to have a conversation about someone's economic well-being. You know, have you thought about how you're going to manage? Have you and your partner had a conversation? How are things going to work in relation to childcare? So actually, you could kind of start to take a bit of a preventative approach quite early on by sort of having conversations about what's available you know, ways in which things can be done, which could create red flags for a victim and survivor if their partner starts to seek to sort of control them through the lack of money that they might have. But, you know, again, I think it's just, you can't differentiate it, certainly again, in heterosexual relationships with females, economic situation more generally, just speaking to people who aren't being abused, certainly struggle with not having the economic independence that they had um, when they were at work and perhaps when they are pregnant or have children and uh, perhaps part-time work on, on less money because of childcare arrangements, feeling guilty about buying a lipstick, treating themselves because they feel like, like that their money is not their money, even if their partner is acting in the way that we would want them to by supporting their partner and, and children at that time. Got some really entrenched views about money and who owns it. And so again, it's very easy for perpetrators to kind of play on some of those things. You know, you're not managing money well, you know, you're being frivolous, you know, you should be spending it in different ways, you know, you're not working, you're not contributing to the pot. You can kind of see how, again, they're playing into those broader societal expectations and feelings that you might have as an individual 
as part of the abuse, but you know, which kind of exists there already, which makes it it just makes it really easy. So I think the more we can encourage people to start having conversations about money and how it's managed and to take away some of that kind of shame and stigma around having those conversations, you know, I think we could most likely be recognizing and responding to economic abuse a lot earlier. Well, I'm really glad that we've just had such a in-depth chat about attitudes and expectations because the next thing that we're going to talk about is a research paper that was all about attitudes towards economic abuse. So the paper was by Green and colleagues, and you can find a link to it in our show notes. And in the research, they gave participants hypothetical scenarios to evaluate and examine participants' attitudes towards economic abuse based on how participants blamed the victim, minimized economic abuse, and excused the perpetrator in these hypothetical scenarios. So they, they aren't real, but they are realistic. So I'm going to read out one of the scenarios and then we'll talk about what the researchers found. So in this scenario, this was deemed the quote-unquote job scenario. Anna is a mother in her mid-30s with three young children. Her husband, John, controls the finances as head of the household. Anna has a job that she really loves, but John constantly insists that Anna quits her job because he wants her to focus on raising their children. However, she has not yet agreed to do so because she loves the company she works for. The house was purchased under John's name, and John makes every investment decision for the family without discussing finances with Anna. John has complete access to Anna's credit cards and bank accounts and takes out loans in her name, while Anna does not have any access to any financial resources. Anna earns a modest income, but she's required to give the money to John. Anna has to ask for money every time she buys household items, food, and children's items like clothes. And she's forced to use cash because, according to John, cash is easier to manage than any other form of money. Anna feels stuck and hopeless because she has no say in their finances, and she is tired of getting approval from John every time she wants to buy something. Recently, Anna and John got into a huge argument because she asked for money to go out for a drink with her best friend, whom she has not seen in a while. That's the end of the scenario. So they don't state in the paper what the jobless scenario is, but I think we could probably imagine what that might look like. And here's what they found. There was no main effect of the scenario condition, so job or jobless, regardless of the employment status of the victim. Participants still blamed the victim, minimized the economic abuse, and excused the perpetrator. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting paper and a really interesting finding that people just have these kinds of attitudes towards economic abuse. And I guess it touches on a lot of the things we've already been talking about in this episode in terms of those entrenched societal beliefs about who handles money and how money is managed in families or across gender roles. And what they also found in this paper, similarly to what we were talking about earlier, is that men were more likely to do this kind of victim blaming, minimizing of the economic abuse, ex excusing of these perpetrators compared to women. And that traditional gender role ideology played a big role in that attitude, the victim blaming or minimizing of economic abuse attitude. 
So yeah, I think that's, it's pretty interesting that it ties in so well with everything we've been saying. The research is really backing up all of those attitudes we've been talking about. I think if you flipped that scenario, so it was the other way around with the survivor, victim survivor being the male and the abuser being the female, it would be fascinating to see what the findings would be accordingly for all of the reasons that we've just discussed. Yeah, I also thought it was really interesting that participants still felt that feeling of blaming the victim despite the language that was used in that hypothetical scenario because some of it's quite emotive you know she con- john constantly insists that anna quit her job she's forced to use cash she feels stuck and hopeless she's required to give the money you would think that that would kind of lend itself to being very empathetic towards her so i suppose it speaks to how pervasive that victim blaming paradigm is within our society that even despite that they still couldn't see things from her perspective and how difficult it is to reach out knowing that that would be society's response that it might be a blaming one as opposed to an empowering one and you know and you know judging who might be or the first person that you might disclose that to it does show how this is a societal issue yeah i was just gonna say it feels like in reporting what was happening to you you wouldn't just be going up against your perpetrator you'd be going up against society and everything it expects of you which it would be easy to understand why people would think that is just a mountain too high to climb i mean again it's fascinating in the economic abuse research that after friends and family the most likely point of disclosure is actually to a financial institution the survivors of economic abuse I guess, again, returning to our kind of initial conversation, if economic abuse isn't being recognised or named as such, you might not think to go to the police or a domestic abuse service, for example. But also, I think it kind of lends itself to the fact that sometimes victim survivors have no choice but to disclose to a financial institution. So when we talk about a societal response, it really does need to be societal. It needs to be everybody. Because again, we know that the reaction to the disclosures we've just described will most likely shape behaviour moving forward. Something that we came across was a census-wide survey that was conducted by the financial company Aviva, and we'll link it in the show notes. Interestingly, they found that overall, when seeking help, the majority of respondents spoke to their bank first before they approached the police or any other professional body, such as victim support services. So it raises a question, do banks have a role to play in supporting victims of economic abuse? Um, what banks and building societies are doing is not commonly understood. And we're working on a bit of a project to understand why, but certainly within the financial services space, there will always be concerns about competition rules and fraud, which means a lot of banks don't publicly share what they're doing. But actually, there is something called a financial abuse code, which exists, which is led by UK Finance, which is the membership organisation, certainly in England for the banks and building societies. And actually, 30 firms, which covers 40 brands, are signed up to the Financial Abuse Code, which contains a number of principles, one of which is to make information available in terms of how they support customers on their websites and other things like um, thinking about safety, so not disclosing addresses or locations through the you know, bank accounts that will come with a no-sort code on the card, for example. You know, another of those principles would be to train their staff to recognise economic abuse, to support their staff who might themselves be experiencing economic abuse, and to also follow principles where a victim survivor only has to tell their story once rather than repeatedly having to tell it over and over again. 
So it's really fantastic to see those kind of basic responses in place. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important. I'm just thinking, though, for survivors out there, what is the support that is available if they are not turning to to banks? We've said that that is the main place people do tend to go to. But what what are the other forms of support that are out there for people? I think that's part of the challenge is to kind of integrate that response to economic abuse within all responses. You know, I think generally there's a sense that people understand what economic abuse is. But I think certainly through our training, when we really sort of delve deep in relation to that, it enables people perhaps to recognise it might be more broad. So I think we've, you know, we've talked about financial abuse and economic abuse quite interchangeably, but actually we are very deliberate in talking about economic abuse and we see financial abuse as a subset within that because financial abuse, we would say, is about the control of money and finances and economic abuse is the control of those things plus anything that money can buy. So if we're looking really broadly across the piece, we're asking all sorts of stakeholders to be integrating a response to economic abuse into their practice, not just domestic abuse services and or banks and financial institutions, local authorities, not just through a violence against women and girls team, but thinking about, you know, their poverty strategies, thinking about their housing strategies, thinking about the work of their kind of collection departments around council tax and other such things. I mean, obviously, the police, although economic abuse is not in and of itself a crime or certain forms of it might be, and it's recognised as a coercive or controlling tactic within the CCB offence, in and of itself, it it is not an offence. So it's about also trying to get the police to kind of recognise the mechanisms that they do have to respond. And again, certainly a piece of research we've done recently suggests that even though economic abuse is now named in legislation and those mechanisms are available, they're not using them. They tend to, to stick to kind of the forms of abuse that are easier to evidence going forward. But, you know, just as broadly as, you know, estate agents, just thinking about house sales, back to that piece around, you know, post-separation abuse, perpetrators deliberately sabotaging the sale of a house, for example. There are so many spaces, you know, people who deal with parking fines where perpetrators drive the car that's registered to the victim or survivor. And so therefore, parks here, there and everywhere. And, and the fine goes back to the victim survivor who kind of has to pick it up. There are just so many spaces in which economic abuse finds itself, whether that again be within utilities and, you know, cost of living crisis, huge cost of energy right now, perpetrators using tech abuse to control the use of heating, insisting that the heating bill was in the survivor's name, pushing up the cost by leaving the heating on deliberately, even when it's not needed. I mean, there's just so many different spaces where we need to be aware of perpetrator tactics. Because if we look at economic abuse in that sense of how broad economic resources are, you know, it touches every aspect of lives from the minute that we wake up and the minute that we go to bed, because the, that bed that you are sleeping in, in and of itself is an economic resource where some survivors are told that they're not allowed to sleep in it because they didn't buy it. So they need to sleep on that cold floor with no blanket because they didn't buy that either. I mean, that sense of degradation and the impact that has on your emotional well-being and your self-worth and your self-esteem, you know, this is this is such an issue that just infiltrates every aspect of everything. I guess you've pointed to quite a few of the gaps in support that are that are there at the moment. There, there are definitely some gaps. One of the gaps that stands out to me is around sort of working with the legal system. 
So thinking about debt abuse in particular is something that's quite close to my own heart. So thinking about joint borrowings for properties or when people take out loans or guarantees on things. And those are signed by two parties, both parties in the relationship, but coercive control has been at play in setting up those contracts. And I think that that is a really difficult thing for lawyers to work with, trying to untangle how to get people out of those sometimes devastating contracts that they have been coerced into that they will carry with them for the rest of their lives. And I guess that's a big gap in support that I find difficult to think about because how do we get lawyers to really understand these very nuanced issues around coercive control and financial abuse? Yeah, I think that operates in lots of different levels. So if we're kind of talking about, you know, lawyers perhaps in the context of a financial settlement, for example, survivors actually being encouraged by their own lawyers, you know, not to raise domestic abuse to challenge some of the asks, I guess, because again, going back to sort of gender norms around kind of gold diggers and wanting to get hands on economic resources that aren't theirs because they didn't pay for them, you know, all of this comes to play and even survivors who then do disclose it as part of the proceedings you know there's no real scrutiny around financial disclosures you know there needs to be sort of a lot of kind of forensic accounting put into place which just kind of doesn't exist you know that's just in one space but even if a court then says actually situation we're going to transfer the title this property to the survivor our systems don't work together so in many cases, we know that the survivor has the court order and goes to the bank and says, you know, the, the house needs to be put in my name. And the bank will say, well, no, we can't do that because you unfair our affordability criteria. And then they have to spend money sort of circling back around to the court again. You know, that would be kind of like when people are trying to sort of set, there's more hope, I would say, again, within the banking space. And as much as because coerced debt is now recognised and that coercion in terms of joint debt, you know, some providers will look at that very generously. So certainly something that we're piloting at Surviving Economic Abuse in partnership with our frontline provider, Money Advice Plus, is something called the Economic Abuse Evidence Form. So that is something that a trained money and debt advisor fills in, sends to the institution. The institution doesn't have to worry about deciding whether economic abuse has happened or not. They're told that it has. And then they make decisions off the back of that. And we use that form to evidence economic abuse alongside in many cases, although that's not the only use of the form, but in many cases, a write-off request for debt that's been coerced in that way. And we've had situations where the victim's survivor, the balance of the debt's been written off. In some cases, they've actually been refunded all the payments they ever made on that loan. And some best practice, so Allied Irish Bank, for example, would also then extend to the bank actually altering their credit rating to remove mispayments or sort of any neg negative impact that has been had on that. So, you know, there are a number of really big creditors signed up to that and increasing number of money and debt advice organisations who have sort of been trained to be able to do it. So, again, sort of shifting in the right direction. But again, if you're thinking about a coordinated community response and the principles to that, these solutions do see those costs being absorbed by the institution and not the abuser who gets away Often, I mean, there are examples where the perpetrator has been pursued by the institution, but often not. So whilst that is really good practice and something that, of course, we want to keep seeing, there's also something about holding the abuser accountable within all of this too. Absolutely. That gives me a lot of hope to hear 
the positive movements. It's good to hear about these big institutions doing great things and hopefully the smaller ones will follow. Hopefully that has a trickle down effect. As we come to the end of this episode, it's time for In Their Own Words, a segment where we ask guests to tell us unprompted about anything relating to this topic that they think is important from their own knowledge, experience or perspective, or just something that they simply want to share with you all. Let's hear what Nicola has to say in their own words. For me, I'm really excited about the global community that we've been building and how we can all learn from each other in terms of that work. So, for example, I was chatting to a counterpart in Australia this morning about an awareness raising campaign that we're going to be doing in November around 16 days of activism, where we're talking about the impact of the cost of living, you know, across different societies across the world and what that looks like in terms of economic abuse and responses to. So I think there's something really powerful and significant in us kind of working together because I think it just shows how much more we can do. You know, there is so much to do and we can't all hope to do it in our own individual ways. But if we come together, then we can. And if we can raise awareness in a way that means kind of internationally, this issue is recognised as well. That's going to support all of us in our work too. For any listeners who are not aware at Surviving Economic Abuse, we do operate an international network. So we do encourage researchers and practitioners, people in all spaces with an interest in economic abuse to kind of sign up to that. And we share the latest research and the latest practice so that we've all kind of building on that initial effort, I guess, in terms of setting up the Surviving Economic Abuse website before it was the charity. You know, there's something really powerful, as I say, about kind of pooling our resources, bringing everything into one place, sharing that learning, learning from each other. And sort of being more of a movement, I guess, moving forward. I think that's what kind of really excites me. And, you know, working with four other countries in terms of our work over the 16 days of activism, you know, we are sort of creating that that movement in quite a small way at the moment. But, you know, we're working together to try and get the UN to recognise the 26th of November as um, an International Economic Awareness Day, you know, to kind of really take that into every country and every society, thinking, you know, what about people who don't operate within banking systems? You know, what about people who do use different ways of managing money and mechanisms? You know, how can we ensure that everybody, depending on their context, you know, has that kind of economic independence in their life that enables them to live the life that they want to? So, yeah, so I just feel really sort of excited about the future and and think it is really important that we talk about this from an international perspective and, and what we can do together and how we can be a movement for change. been listening to pulling the strings if you'd like further information on anything we've discussed in this episode or if you have felt affected by anything you've heard please see our show notes for additional resources please do review and subscribe wherever you listen it helps us to find more listeners and means you'll never miss an episode thank you to the violence abuse and mental health network for funding this podcast thank you to our guests and thank you for listening until next time Take care.